Well, welcome again. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, you can turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We live in a day uh, in which technology has us more connected, so to speak, uh, certainly more connected to information, what's going on in our world, and more connected to people at some level over cyberspace than ever before, ever even probably just a couple decades ago uh, could be imagined. But in spite of this, studies are showing that um, many people are feeling more isolated and more alone than ever. So it's a really striking contrast there that, that there's this, these mechanisms, so to speak, for connection, but people are f- feeling more isolated and alone than ever. And, and it seems that the more we're getting tied into our technology, uh, what has happened is it's kind of the less that we are tying into the gift of actually being with other people. And, and maybe we could say the social art of being able to relate to the presence of others. There's, there's more and more things that really just encourage us to stay home, uh, to withdraw, and, and we're losing that kind of the, the art of social interaction and practicing the presence of others. And I wonder, too, if this is a season, with that being true, and studies are definitely finding that that's true, that it's of a season, if it's a season that as Christians... We're losing the art of relating to the presence of God. Last week, as we continued asking this question, and it seems like a simple question, uh, but it's really a question that can't be fully answered. What is God really like? In theological terms, we're talking about the attributes of God, the qualities of God. We reflected on the beginning of Psalm 139. We looked at the first six verses. And it's a psalm in which a commentator named Derek Kidner writes, Any small thoughts that we have of God are magnificently transcended. Yet for all its height and depth, it remains intensely personal from first to last. So in those first six verses, we marveled along with David at God's knowledge a knowledge that has no limits, meaning also that God's knowledge is total concerning David's existence. And that's where it got very personal. And, and, and really then we can relate it to us that this knowledge of God is total concerning my existence and your existence. And we noted that, that often the first inclination when pondering kind of such a mammoth thought is, is often this instinct, instinct to flee, an instinct to hide away. <laughs> uh, we feel exposed. And, and like Adam and Eve in the garden, we hide away in shame. And as we move on in Psalm 139, you very much get that sense from David. He says that God's complete knowledge of him, the, the knowledge of his movements, the knowledge of his ways, the knowledge of his words the knowledge even of his innermost thoughts, is a knowledge that is too wonderful for me, he says, too lofty for me to attain. 
He says that he can't even grasp it. And likely, like all of us, he feels incredibly and maybe dangerously exposed and naked by it. So what will he do? He'll run. He'll run away. He'll try to escape it. He'll attempt to find, kind of find refuge from this all-encompassing knowing. Francis Thompson writes in his famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. How prone we are to flee from God. But in this, David becomes aware of the impossibility of fleeing from God. For not only is God's knowledge without limit, the expanse of God here becomes even more personal. As, God's, as David becomes profoundly aware that God's presence is also boundless. He is not only known by God, but he is, as writer J.A. Motyer puts it, he is surrounded by God. God is omnipresent, everywhere present. And as David imagines his escape, so to speak, he encounters God everywhere. At every turn, God, God, everywhere God. There's no place that he is not. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Again, J.I. Motyer says, Perhaps even more scary than a God who pursues you to the ends of the earth is one who is already there when you arrive. Jeremiah 23, 24, God asks, Can anyone hide in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. A.W. Tozer says, God is our environment, as the sea is to fish and the air to the bird. Now, saying that, and even in, in listening to Tozer saying, God is our environment, we, we need not go to a place where we kind of come up with this version of pantheism. Because to say God is everywhere is not to say that everything is God. They're two different things. For though there is no place that God is not, he will also not be confined by anything. He is singular God in all places 
at all times. His presence is the unseen essence, if you will, that holds the universe from, from the orbit of the planets to the working of the atom in order. I mentioned last week that, that scientists puzzle over how the galaxies in space are held together. They say, really, of what we know, they should be falling apart. But scripture reminds us in Colossians 1, referring to Jesus, it says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things. And then there's this instrument, interesting statement. It says, and in him, in Christ Jesus, all things hold together. Tozer says the universe operates as an orderly system, not by impersonal laws, but by the creative voice of the imminent and universal presence, the logos, that word that John uses in the beginning of his gospel of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, logos, Jesus. Now, one of the realities that must be faced when considering God's infinite presence is that we are never unseen. We are never unseen. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And David, in this psalm, becomes acutely aware of this. He says in verses 11 and 12, If I say... Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So David says that even the darkness isn't a cover for him. It's not an escape. It's not only that God doesn't see dimly, for he, it's everything to him, even the darkest darkness is exposed as the light of day to him, but he is there. Whatever you and I do, by day or by night, whether it be in public or whether it be in secret, we do in God's presence. And we do this seen by God and again, the striking effect here is that we're not just seen by God, a God that is aloof and far off, but a God that is imminent, a God that is near. His watchful eye and his presence surround me every moment. The few moments in life that feel very profound and the multitude that seem mundane. He sees each small choice each movement of the eye, each movement of thought. The awareness of his sight really should, and this is where we often, when we've walked with the Lord for some time, or maybe you've grown up in the church, you can become callous to this. The idea that the Lord is ever watchful and ever near should bring a great account to our lives, a great sense of accountability to our lives. 
And should also add, we can say, the, a magnitude of meaning to each seemingly ordinary moment that you never before would have dreamed possible. For in each moment, in each decision, in each thought, God is with you, there and aware. It's interesting, as, as we move through this Psalm 139, it's here that you sense the psalm begins to take a bit of a turn. David has perceived and, and, in a sense, been besieged by God's unlimited knowledge and surrounding presence. He likely feels as Isaiah trembling before the throne, where Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined! Or maybe like Peter when he pleads with Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Or like Paul when he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But for Isaiah, there was the purifying coal. To Peter, in that moment where he cries out, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus replies, don't be afraid. For Paul, there is the full understanding that Jesus and Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he says. He answers his own question. Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. David now begins to see that God, whom he tried in vain to flee, was lovingly there all along. Even in his mother's womb. Even before his mother's womb. Verses 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me, or it could be concerning me, how precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's striking that David is taken back at the wonder of the magnitude of God's thoughts concerning him. I, I realize sometimes we, it's been said, and, and rightly said, that our generation of Christian culture has become quite selfish, has become quite, as our larger culture has, me-focused. And, and, and it's right to, in many ways, push back against that. But it's also right to marvel at God's, at God's thoughts concerning me. We don't have to throw away the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. 
Here David marvels that from every intricate detail of his forming to the preordaining of each of his days, God has thought of him. And just the thoughts of him and just the thoughts of you, you as a person, you, God has had such thoughts of you that those thoughts would outnumber the grains of the sand on the seashore. God has been lovingly there all along. I, like you, have moments, probably more often than I want to admit, that I'm happy to think of myself as quite worthless. And I know you relate to that. And recently, in a moment of, of inner self-defamation, if you will, God reminded me, I, I was just thinking and pondering on this feeling of worthlessness. I had, a, I had this image come to my mind, and it was of the vision of Peter that God gave Peter in Acts, where God says, do not call anything impure, that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And it was as if in that moment God was speaking to me, being like, Randy, don't dare, even with yourself, call unimportant what I have called important. God has been working on you and I since our conception and even before. How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Again, Derek Kidner comments, such divine knowledge is not only wonderful, but David says precious since it carries its own proof of infinite commitment. God will not leave the work of his own hands, neither to chance or to ultimate extinction. Kidner later writes, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but is operative there. He's working there. The author of every detail of my being. Some of you know, and now you will all know, uh, my second daughter, Lauren, is pregnant with Cheryl and my first grandchild. Do we look like grandparents? You're supposed to say, no, you do not. And that's been a journey already, but the thoughts of that especially as I enter into this passage, that as my daughter is about 17, 18 weeks along in her pregnancy, that in these verses I hear of God's perfect knowledge and foreknowledge of that child. From conception and before, 
to every moment and every day of that life to come. These verses speak of a God that is an artist and a deliberate creator of that child's being. And, and what was beautiful as I pondered these verses this week, and I'm not sure, it, and I should have connected this, I mean, it's, it's so plainly there, that the other marvel is that God is with that child in the womb. That David is saying that, that he was knit together, fearfully and wonderfully made, in the depths of the earth, in, in the darkest place, and in his mama's uterus. But even in that place, as God did his amazing work, he was there. He was present. What a comfort for me already as a granddad to think that God is present with my grandchild today. Even now, surrounding him or her in my daughter's womb, that that child is fearfully and wonderfully made. That God's thoughts concerning that child outnumber the grain of sand on the seashore. J. Montier again says, I was being woven together, intricately wrought by a God who on that tiny scale was engaged in a task, perhaps more like his original immense work of creation than anything else that he does. He was creating not only life, but a life. So David may have had thoughts of running. But now he sees that he is trying to flee from the very one whose right hand has held him fast. Even as he tried to take flight to the farthest stretches of the sea. It's hard not to imagine, of, uh, uh, to think of Jonah in the Old Testament attempting to run from God. For all it's worth, I'm going to run. God, you've told me to do, you've told me to be, you've told me to engage, and I'm going to run. And I'm going to run with all my might. But then Jonah finds God and prays to God in a place that nowhere else, no one else could have found him. In the depths of the sea, in the belly of a large fish, Jonah finds God. Do you know that you can find God even in your darkest and loneliest places? Do you know that he is already there waiting for you, so to speak? David realizes that even while he's being knit together in his mother's womb, and even as he slept, or some people actually think David is referring to his own physical death, he has never been and never will be alone. When I awake from sleep or from death, I am still with you. 
I'm reminded of a simple centering prayer that Phil Dunbar taught us several years ago. Ten simple, profound words that I can always, anywhere, and everywhere pray in truth. And it's so simple, but sometimes it's like, I need a prayer like this, this simple. It just says, I am here. God is here. We are here together. And anywhere I'm at, any circumstance, high or low, the deepest trial, the deepest loneliness, the most profound joy, I am here. I am in this place. I am feeling these things. But God is here, and we are here together. The awareness of the Lord's presence certainly brings a new level of accountability but instead of the fear that is appropriate, we could say, for those who reject God and reject Christ, there's nothing that should bring the believer more joy, more confidence, more comfort than his faithful presence. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in his 13th chapter, in a context of both kind of living in purity and living in contentment as opposed to lust and worry and covetousness and Greed, he reminds us that God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, he says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? R.T. France uses an illustration here of the presence of King Harry among his vastly outnumbered troops in Agincourt, France. This is in the 1400s. Shakespeare wrote about it. And as his weary and outnumbered army awaited battle, they were vastly outnumbered. They took heart because King Harry began to move amongst the troops. Take courage. Take heart. Be strong. Shakespeare writes, Forth he goes and visits all his host, aids them good morrow with a modest smile, and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. With cheerful semblance and sweet majesty, that every wretch, pining and pale before, Beholding him plucks comfort from his looks. And I love this, that later the battle is won against all odds. And, and the, the idea is that uh, the battle is won not so much by skill, but as much by, as Shakespeare late, later puts it, a little touch of Harry in the night. A little touch of Harry in the night. Take courage. I'm with you. I thought, how often our battles are won, not by our own strength, but by a little touch of God's presence in the night. Near the end of this psalm, we have a few verses that at first glance seem strikingly harsh and out of tempo with the rest of the psalm. 
Verses 19 through 21. David continues, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do, not, do, not I, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. David's words here are actually not quite as shocking as they first appear. We certainly must sober them with the knowledge and the light and the revelation of Jesus' teaching where he calls us to a higher place. And when he says, he says, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But here as David's becoming kind of acutely aware of the infinite supremacy of God, along with his imminent nature in the, in the affairs of men. He is overcome with the honor. He's overcome with the allegiance that God's majesty and God's closeness calls for. He sees that in one sense it draws a line in the sand. And he's saying without mincing any words that he's clearly choosing to be on God's side and not with those who would attempt to rise up against him. Again, from Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven, he writes as if in God's own words, all things betray thee who betrayest me. In the end, as I mentioned as I wrapped up last week, David concludes as he sees there's no use in running, no use in hiding from the unlimited knowledge and presence of God, that the greatest wisdom lies in submitting himself to it. He too must be sifted by God. So if there's anything in him that betrays God, he wants it found out. What a difficult place if we're honest with ourselves, right? If there's anything, Lord, that offends you, if there's anything that betrays my loyalty and my allegiance to you, I want it found out. I want it searched out. I want it cast out. But he's found now that he can safely lay himself bare before God, before the God that knows him better than he knows himself, the God who has thoughtfully and carefully made him and ordained his days, the God who lovingly surrounds him, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. So we have this rhythm through this poetry of Psalm 139. God knows me. I must flee. I can't flee. For God surrounds me. God is to be honored. I surrender to his knowing, his presence, and his way. Once we realize we don't need to run from God's presence, 
we can begin to learn to take full advantage of it. That he welcomes us to come to him. That he makes a way for us to surrender ourselves to him through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That when we come to him in repentance and faith, we are taking full advantage of his presence. And there we find forgiveness. And there we continue to come for the flow of life. We continue to come to him through prayer. We continue to come to him in sweet companionship. We continue to come to him for comfort, for his assurance, for his correction and his refinement, his loving discipline in our life, his care and provision, his strength and guidance. So we might say here that David pledges his allegiance to God with kind of a flag of surrender. Search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Test me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me to the way everlasting. Don't we have to do the same? Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. First as Savior and Lord in repentance and faith. And then daily. Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my Savior. I will be mindful and take full advantage that you are present with me every step of the way. Never leaving, never forsaking, with us to the end. David may be proclaiming his allegiance to God, but in the end we could praise God for his allegiance to us. Amen. That those who come to Christ can truly say that the ever-present God has chosen to be for us and not against us. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we've just taken this time, just, just a half an hour together to reflect and dwell on these thoughts. I, I pray, Lord, boldly that the Spirit of the living God has caused us to come into your presence in a special way. I pray, Lord God, for those who have heard something that have triggered something profoundly important that they needed to hear, that you not allow Satan to snatch that away. Maybe for some it's the need to come to faith, to recognize your presence, to stop trying to run the veinless pursuit of running. Maybe for others it was an encouragement that even in the depth of despair, even in the darkest place, you were there. Maybe for others it's the accountability that comes with knowing that you were watchful and near. I pray that you meet us where we're at, Lord God. I pray that we continue to get a larger and larger and larger vision of our God. Infinite, supreme, but yet imminent and near. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.